not learning another Kaizo thing ever again. I did Mario, and that was hard and rewarding, and I'm 32, so that's it. <laughs> Last one. I just like watching people play those games. I've never been that good, and I'm too easily frustrated, as uh, definitely well illustrated by the fact that I bought Armored Core 6 the other day and have already become instantly frustrated by the tutorial boss. <laughs> I'm fascinated oh, yeah. by the mindset that has made so many people buy Armored Core because like FromSoft was very clear when they released this. They were like, this is an Armored Core game. We would encourage you to go look at other Armored Core games and get a feel for what you're getting into because this is not Dark Souls. And then everybody was like, I love FromSoft. I'm buying this game. And they bought it and they were like, why is this a highly detailed battle mech simulator? <laughs> well, no, I wanted a battle mech simulator. I just had no idea if I would be any good at a battle mech simulator. Mm. And the answer so far is a resounding no well when yeah. i was uh when i was like college age i guess i didn't go to college but i had some friends who were always dragging me to this arcade where they had like the booths you would get in with a big oh, like curved yeah. screen and all of the mech controls it and you would cool have to style. like in 10 minutes design a mech get into the server and then you had like 30 minutes to run around fighting each other and it was so fucking complicated that by the time i was invited to come back for the second time i was like i don't think i'll be coming guys thank you so much <laughs> for thinking of me <laughs> <laughs> yeah i don't know that game looks hard as hell yeah you're right the tu the tutorial boss where you have to jump up in the air and melee a helicopter yeah that's the part that's been fucking me over also because the helicopter all my instincts is out are of like, bounds well yeah my instincts are all like <laughs> don't melee a helicopter because that doesn't make sense <laughs> you don't have you you need to get kaiju slash mecha brain going on where it's like a helicopter is a punchable object that's like swatting a fly <laughs> it's a very big helicopter though i think I'm, i think helicopter is underselling the size of this thing all right a horse fly then or a small bird maybe a swallow or a sparrow <laughs> it's like as big as as the pentagon <laughs> like this is this is an absurdly large helicopter i'm sorry i dozed out there for a second dreaming of swatting the pentagon <laughs> <laughs> but anyways we should probably talk about unions instead of that, meccas <laughs> that's true it's saturday morning we're getting a little bit riled up but um video game review podcast my name is john <laughs> i'm dan and i'm lena and we're entirely listener supported so thank you so much if you support the show on patreon it really does go a long way if you're not in the discord already hop in there it's a really wonderful place where you can find our reading group that is hosted on tuesdays i believe if you're a patron who does not yet have stickers just message us on patreon and i'll walk over to the post office for you and if you want to help the show a little bit more leave us a five-star review on apple podcasts or on the steam page for armored core six yeah uh <laughs> I was uh, told uh, by our our reading group host, Pat, in the server that this week there is not a reading group, but there will be one the following week. Oh, you see that? Masters of communication. Get in the Discord to learn important life skills. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, so before we hop into, you know, our main stories, just wanted to throw out a couple of quick headlines that didn't have, you know, a ton of detail to them, but I think are worth mentioning. First off, want to shout out that the uh, string of states moving to ban captive audience meetings continues to grow, which is dope. Uh, This past week, New York Governor uh, Hochul signed a law banning captive audience meetings in that state, uh, which joins Vermont. Maine, Oregon, and like one other one, I think. I think maybe Minnesota. Um, I think we're up to five states now. Oh, and Connecticut. Connecticut banned them. So, mm. yeah. So that's been pretty cool. Most of the states in the Northeast and the Pacific Northwest. But I think, you know, the fact that this is continuing to gain momentum, I think, is a really good sign. Yeah, it's definitely good. I think that one thing to point out is that some the word banned can be a little bit of a misnomer in that, like, those meetings can still happen. It's just a ULP if they make you go to them. Right. I guess, yeah, I guess the, the more accurate thing would they banned mandatory captive audience meetings yeah you're right they can the company can still have them and because they are only banning them if they're mandatory i'm sure plenty of companies will do a lot of that like you don't have to come to this meeting but it would be a good idea if you came to this meeting making things that aren't technically mandatory still functionally mandatory is a corporate art form that goes back generations (laughs) yeah so i mean so we'll we'll as with any reform under capitalism, we'll see how it plays out. But you know, regardless, a step in the right direction. And um, one other thing, just wanted to shout out real quick. Uh, congratulations to the dancers at the Magic Tavern Strip Club in Portland, who have now become the second unionized strip club in the country. When this week they voted unanimously to unionize with Actors Equity, the same union that just recently uh, unionized the first unionized strip club in i believe la earlier Mm -hmm. this year imagine you you live in portland and you're like uh you're walking into the magic tavern and you're like oh i'm so excited i'm gonna get a fresh new d20 and some magic the gathering cards and you're presented (laughs) instead with unionized strippers (laughs) (laughs) that's very funny uh i believe that the other one also had a unanimous vote i think that if anything this indicates that workers who are you know in this category of like you know dancers or you know whatever they are very likely to be very pro-union and uh unions need to get on that shit and because these workers need representation well and and of course you know i think one of the things that sticks out about the whole it feels weird calling strip clubs an industry (laughs) um but I mean, I think it, it is. is, but but like of all of the things that I think anybody would consider about that is that the workers there need way, way better working conditions. Mm-hmm. And we're not going to get those from state regulation. Uh, so really the one path towards that is unionization. So even if folks have some reluctance about the industry, like if you want things to be better for the workers involved, unionization is the path towards that. Well, and like, right. there's a lot of hemming and hawing and people are like, oh, is it really an industry? Oh, I have like, you know, they have biases against anything that approaches sex work or is part of that kind of umbrella term. But it's like a lot of people are will say shit like, oh, you know, you, you appear unserious. Are they really workers? And it's like, I think that whole line of argument is so poisoned from the beginning, especially when we live in a society where people will try to tell you that the person making your coffee 
somehow isn't a worker. It's like, I think it's really important that we really nail down, okay, look, anybody who who punches in and receives wages or tips, that's a fucking worker. Yeah, like, I, I'm gonna, like, I, just to lay this out here as a guideline for folks, the question of is X a worker is very, very simple. It's It's, like, not nearly as complicated as it's made out to be. It's like, is this person a boss who can hire and fire people and lives off the exploitation of their labor? Well, that person's not a worker. Are they a cop or cop-like profession, like a prison guard? Uh, and that's basically it. Yeah, that's the <laughs> list. <laughs> I guess you, I guess throw politicians in there too. I suppose yeah. that's that's but that yeah that's about it. Everybody else, pretty much. Yeah, pr- is prisoners are workers. But, but Dan, that's pretty much everyone. Yeah. <laughs> Wild. Yeah, prisoners are workers. The unemployed are workers. You know. Yeah, because I think people get to go a bit nerdy. Uh, like even like well-meaning Marxists, I think get a bit too hung up on being pedantic sometimes. And I just want to point out to those folks that wor- the working class is bigger than just the strictly defined proletariat. Mm-hmm. Well, I, <laughs> yeah, I often say the working classes just to sure. make yeah. it simple and easy. But mm-hmm. yeah, I mean it's basically the same idea. Yeah, and so. Moving on to our first full story this week, uh, just you know, a couple of weeks ago, we discussed how Grinder had been retaliating against its own workforce for unionizing, mm-hmm. because after the workers at the LGBTQ dating app announced that they were forming a union with the CWA, the company responded not by you know recognizing the union or even just putting out a weird corporate press release like hemming and hawing about it or even making a a a bold declarative statement about how much they hate their workers like starbucks does every time they just decided to jump straight to the retaliation uh by implementing a new draconian return to the office policy which had previously never been imposed on anyone and actually was literally the top of the list demand from the union. It was right. really just like a slap in the face. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. The bosses demanded that hundreds of workers who had been working fully remote for years with no issues suddenly uproot their lives and move across the country to one of Grinders, just a couple of offices, two of which I think are in California. Um, and, and so, you know, as expected... This move has devastated the company's workforce because uh, most of these folks just would, it's not feasible. You know, if you live in like New York and the nearest office for a grinder is in Chicago, then it probably doesn't make sense for you to uproot your whole life. Now, of course, the, the, the most insidious part of this is that the company knows that like mm-hmm. this, this was a fully intentional move and, 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 it's gotten the results that they were looking for, apparently, because as Natalie Long reported for Bloomberg this week, the company, since implementing this new return to the office policy and retaliation for organizing, has lost nearly half of its staff, 80 of its 178 employees, which is a rather stunning number. The CWA has filed yet another unfair labor practice against the company for its obvious retaliation and its change of status quo conditions, calling the company's severance package offer, which was provided to staff who refused Grinders' ultimatum to move across the country, an attempt, quote, to silence workers from speaking out about their working conditions, end quote. 
And it absolutely is. And this whole returning to office thing has really been the issue du jour that companies and managers have been trying to use, especially against any kind of office or tech workers. Um, and we've been seeing a lot of echoes of that in the tech and business press, so-called, recently. I can't tell you how many fucking articles and, and editorials I've seen recently that are like, how about a return to office policy where you only have to do it half the time? How about 12 core weeks in the office? And this company created a return to office plan that their employees actually like. And it's all just a big fucking lie. They're trying to present us with the idea that we are living post-COVID and that there's no re I'm doing enormous scare quotes, no <laughs> reason not to return to the office to resume productivity. And like every, every word of that sentence makes less sense the further <laughs> along it you go. Well, yeah, because it's like, hey, we're not post-COVID. That's not mm -hmm. a thing. But even if COVID had never existed, mm -hmm. the idea that the office environment is a necessity for productivity is complete horseshit. No, it is a labor discipline tactic. And e even under the best circumstances, uh, not the best circumstances, even under the simplest circumstances where there's no unionization effort, everything is just humming along as it normally does at the company, they're still trying to do labor discipline when they try to draw you back into the office. And then that's only exacerbated and made much more obvious and intense when they're trying to use it to bust up organization among their employees. Well, and speaking of that, I think that another downstream effect of this retaliation is the actually affecting the people who use this app, which are oh, LGBTQ sure. folks who are mm -hmm. generally in more danger in society. And mm -hmm. speaking to that, Eric Cortez, a member of the union's organizing group at Grindr, said, quote, These decisions have left Grindr dangerously understaffed and raised questions about the safety, security, and stability of the app for users. Mm -hmm. It's clear Grindr wants workers to be silenced and deterred from exercising our right to organize regardless of the expense end quote yeah i mean there's a there's so much here and like this story is already bad and you think you're already mad at this story but just wait until i tell you how the ceo responded to this so we'll get into this. there's a lot of aspects to these return to the office policies that are bullshit but just to tell you how the management is thinking about these things. Grinder CEO recently talked about this policy and the change to their staff, the change to their staff, the slashing of the staff by cutting half of their jobs uh, on an earnings call. You know, these are these opportunities for shareholders to hear from the CEO and also the rare opportunity sometimes for reporters to, to actually hear through a lot of the PR speak that we get from public statements. And so during a recent earnings call following this, this policy change, their CEO, uh, just ridiculous bourgeois ghoul, George Arison, said, quote, The team will be smaller than where we were before and where we want to be. So that'll obviously impact margin in a positive way in the near term. But I also think that shows you can have a lot of leverage in this business because you don't need that big a team to do the things that we need to do, end quote. So he's just like, hey, so yeah, I cut half my staff, but that's great. We don't have to pay anybody anymore. This is so great. Look, this is just sound business. I've talked to all of the other Yale boys, and they agree with me entirely. <laughs> <laughs> I mean... I mean, it's really, I think he's just pointing to the fact, oh, it's like, well, the app works. Nothing else needs to be done, says really uh, successful rich people who turn apps into really successful apps. We've seen it recently in uh, great cases like X.com, the not porn <laughs> site. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, well, you know, I, I wouldn't expect anything more coherent than this from a guy whose name sounds like George Harrison saying his own name. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. But I so like I think that this this case says a lot really about the current labor market in a lot of different ways. Like one, I, I think one of the things that this really points out that we need to be really on top of when we're countering media narratives. Uh, because return to office policy really should always be in huge air quotes because this case and several others, especially when we see these comments, you know, from the CEO themselves directly to the shareholders point out that the return to office policy, while it is primarily a labor discipline item, is also an intentional form of mask layoffs. Mm-hmm. Like this, and we've seen this at so many tech companies. There have been tons of different tech, like Google has done this, Apple has done this, many other, I think Microsoft might have done this. I'm not sure on that one though. Um, but like m- almost all the major tech companies have recently gone through massive rounds of layoffs. But as a part of that, and oftentimes just before the official layoff part comes out, they implemented a really strict return to the office policy, fully aware and with the intention of forcing out many people who will not be able to uproot their life and move to one of the office locations. And so like we, that's one of the things that I think, you know, uh, as, as people, you know, pushing the labor movement and people involved with like pro worker policies, that this is a talking point that like we should be ready to counteract because one of the things that businesses always try to do when they lay off a shitload of workers is try and minimize community anger at that by PR and this is one of the ways that they do that. It's like, we're not laying off workers. We're just, you know, trying to, to embrace post-COVID reality or some other oh sort my of God. Look, <laughs> We're just right-sizing the company. Okay? Oh, right. I fucking hate that one. Uh, I mean, like, we also have to... We're in COVID year four right now. Some of these workers had never, ever been to the office. Right. So That's they're true. not returning to the office. They're being forced into a brand new set of work conditions. Yeah. Imagine if you got a job during COVID because it was work from home and it fit your skill set and you live in fucking Tucson, Arizona or whatever. And then a couple of years down the road, they're like, we are very proud to be announcing our return to office policy and we would love to welcome you back to our branch in Sacramento, California. Like right. you would feel like you were going crazy. Yeah. And the other thing, though, I think, and the reason that I think that we should be really upfront about these RTO policies really being layoffs is that they, there are many states that have requirements. It might be a federal requirement, but where if you're going to lay off a certain number of workers, you have to post a like 60 day notice or 30 day notice beforehand so that, you know, workers have time to make arrangements and stuff like that. And, and it's going to affect, you know, the, the economy of the local area. And so you're required to give people some notice. You're not required to give any notice on a policy like this because it's not classed as a layoff, even though it is. So again, this is, we have, this is the, the, the thing with labor law in, in capitalist societies is you are constantly falling behind the attempts by the bosses to just get out of even the most basic restrictions. And so, you know, the CWA has filed multiple ULPs. I think this is a clear case for a Semex bargaining order, but I yeah. also uh, am extremely pessimistic that the NLRB A will will recognize that and that B even if they do that that such an order will stand because personally even if the the NLRB decides that it's a Semex case, I think that 
an administrative law judge and just the judiciary generally is so pro-business that any sort of attempt to rein in the ability of companies to implement these sorts of RTO policies will be seen as uh, over-interference in in private business affairs. So, look, may, I could be wrong. I hope I'm wrong, but I'm extremely pessimistic that this is going to get ruled correctly by the NLRB. Well, and I don't think that that's an unreasonable assessment because it's not that, like, if the NLRB rules on this, yeah, it probably would be a Semex decision, but the fact that... Uh, Grinder is being led by Littler Mendelssohn right now mm-hmm. does mean that that sort of thing is going to get appealed and it's definitely going to an administrative law judge, which then it is to the whims of, of you know, what, what is it? It's like uh, 80% of them are basically going to rule that that's an infringement on the business's rights to force workers to do whatever the fuck they want. Yeah, I mean, you're basically relying on a spin of a roulette wheel to hope you don't get some heritage foundation creature that thinks that unions are a conspiracy. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, we'll see what happens though. I certainly look, I hope I'm wrong. I hope that the the workers get a better response on this because this is, this is some bullshit. Like this is a lot of people who are doing good work, you know, and that were just forced out because in clear retaliation. So solidarity with these workers, uh, this sucks. (laughs) Yeah. So, In our next follow-up, we're going to talk about the nurses' strike at Rutgers, because the last time we checked on this strike uh, at the uh, Robert Wood Johnson University Hospital at Rutgers in New Brunswick, New Jersey, was about a month ago. When the strike began, Rutgers attempted to use medical students to scab to, quote, ease the transition, end quote, to the use of replacement travel nurses to try to break the strike. Now that it's September, the hospital administration has ramped up their attacks on striking workers, cruelly cutting off of the cut, uh, cruelly cutting their health care to try to force them to cave. They're cutting the health care of nurses, and I know this isn't the first time we've seen this, but I just think that is especially egregious for health care workers to have their health care cut. Yeah, no, I mean it. It, it always reminds me of the. You're going to have to help me out on this one. Uh, what's the big uh, healthcare company in Pittsburgh? Oh, that's going to be Edna. UPMC. Oh, UPMC. No, UPM, UPMC. Because I remember we covered the UPMC workers, uh, might have been two years ago now, and I think we found something like 40-50% of the nurses there had accumulated medical debt mm-hmm. while being nurses. Yeah, I mean, the the system in this country is, is just, I you know, it's one of the things you want to say it's broken, even though intellectually, you know, it's functioning as, as designed because it's just like, this is just such an absurd situation that we all just accept. Well, it's bad enough when there's a guy on TikTok who's like, I, I have to work an hour to make three of these things. I make 3000 of them an hour. But now when that's like somebody who is literally fixing human bodies mm-hmm. is facing that same conundrum, it starts to feel a little Philip K. Dick or something. Yeah. <laughs> well, I just remember one of the first labor rallies that I ever went to many, many years ago. It was, there was UPMC workers up there talking and one of the women was like, I've got cancer. I can't afford my cancer treatment. I work in the hospital with people who have cancer. Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> but, but capitalism is the only uh, logical, reasonable uh, system. Yeah. It's even humane. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, sure. Yeah. Well, the nurses have been fighting for a new contract containing requirements for the hospital to provide safe staffing levels, as nurses do in every single strike. But like nearly all hospital administrations, taking care of patients is a distant second on their list of priorities beyond maximizing profit. They don't really care how many patients suffer adverse health outcomes or even die, as long as they can keep labor costs down and their labor force docile. The use of travel nurses as permanent replacements has become a standard practice for strike-breaking hospitals. While many nurses have left permanent positions for the allure of you know, much higher paychecks at travel agencies, they are essentially trading away any form of like job security or even like solidarity. I mean, like you're throwing your fellow workers to like horrible conditions. I mean, sure, you get some really good paychecks, but overall, it's incredibly short, uh, short-sighted. And because of how it's making the conditions so much worse, when really these this strike could be short, there could be more nurses on staff. Like it, like if it was difficult for this for the hospitals to get these like permanent replacement traveling nurses or whatever, like it would be a lot harder for them to you know keep providing any of these services, and the nurses would win in days, a week. You like, but you know, unfortunately, we got way too many fucking scabs in this country. Yeah, I mean, it's like, look, I, I, I try to look at things from a structural perspective, and of course, the primary problem here is the, uh, you know, the economic system and the, the, the administrators pushing these policies and attacking their workforce. That's ultimately the problem. But I don't know. You can't watch too many of those uh, travel nurse TikToks where they're bragging about breaking strikes and not be like. You know that's like not just bad for them, right? Like, like long term, that's bad for you. <laughs> well, look, I stand with workers, but it is possible for a worker to be a problem. That yeah. absolutely happens. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And, and like obviously, you know, it's one of those things where like it's we. we this is where we just got to send you know organizers into the travel nurse ranks to try to organize travel nurses and demobilize this whole attempt to create basically an almost app-based army of reserve labor that can be Mm -hmm. used to break strikes around the country. Because that's one of the things that has traditionally made nursing such a strong unionized workforce is the fact that for the most part, you can't close down the plant and move it to another country. Uh, The people are there. The people are the, the user base. And so you can't usually move it. But if you could just import strike breakers whose whole thing is that's just their job they travel from strike to strike like uh first off people doing that maybe maybe like uh re-examine your life uh, mm-hmm. yeah it, and just consider how that is uh con- massively contributing to the destruction of nursing as a profession in this country and not just the destruction of nursing but also healthcare is an important part of communities and nurses mm-hmm. tend to be one of the healthcare professionals who m- most represent the community in which the institution is located. They tend to come from the surrounding neighborhoods and communities. And when you bring in travel scabs to break up the strike, it doesn't just damage the nurses' livelihoods, it also damages the communities in which they live. 
Yeah. yeah. Well, and I mean, and these are all super important points, but I also think that we should get to, you know, another culprit in this, you know, attack on these nurses. And that's the administration, which has made like no real effort in bar- to bargain in good faith, instead making it clear with really arrogant, childish statements that, you know, in- that they intend to use strike nurses to punish the actual the, the regular nurses. Wendy uh, Godson, how do I pronounce? this gots again uh, yeah gots again yeah wendy gots again uh, a hospital spokesperson said quote we have said all along that there is no benefit from a strike least of all for our nurses i hope the union considers the impact a prolonged strike is having on our nurses and their families end quote one for this is like in a fucking appalling third like third partying the union as if these nurses aren't themselves the union who are out there striking for their own working and living conditions and like john said their communities like it's so appalling and then being like well you know what we it's it's actually the nurses fault that they are you know doing so poorly because they are the ones who hired all of these scabs or some shit? Like, it, it's absolutely ridiculous sort of bullshit statement. It well, really look, pisses me off. <laughs> getting together in an organized group and striking for better working conditions is a lot of things, but it's not thoughtless. It's not a thing you do without consideration. Like, to say that these nurses have not made any kind of consideration or thought about the patients is just, like, it's not only sickening, it's also, like, obviously untrue. Like, <laughs> Well, no, but that's not even what they're going with with this statement. This is, this is just a petulant dig mm-hmm. uh, from a paternalistic viewpoint from the administration. This is purely to rub it in, to grind like salt into the wound of this strike because this is exactly the same thing that you hear from you know some shitty principal or whatever at a school treating a a child who did something they don't like and then giving them a massively like out of proportion punishment and then they're just like i hope you think about what you did and the impacts it 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 how it affects people it's exactly the same thing they're trying to do here except that they're talking about people who are fighting to literally save people's lives by Mm -hmm. getting enough workers in this hospital it's it's disgusting yeah well and i mean as i was alluding to i mean the nurses aren't backing down with their union the one that is on strike the one that they voted to go on strike with despite the malicious behavior of the fucking scumbag administrators uh who have refused to even meet at the bargaining table for three weeks in uh, in the last weeks of August, members of the community held a candlelit march with the nurses to show solidarity. The administration the administration can continue to like roll out all this cruel bullshit and intimidation tactics all they want, but you know, I mean, people know that the best care comes from nurses who are in good working conditions, and that's shown by a lot of this community support. And I don't know, I just uh, you know, it's maybe it's the early morning, but I'm extra mad. <laughs> Yeah, but I mean, as always, solidarity with the uh, the nurses at this hospital and uh, travel nurses. Please stop scabbing. <laughs> um, Absolutely. So we've got another follow up. This one from surprisingly hard hitting journalistic out uh, outlet MJ Biz Daily, who I have put out. 
<laughs> I, I our favorite a, news outlet. For after years of doing a fucking weed-themed podcast, of all of the marijuana-themed news websites, MJ Biz Daily actually does some pretty good reporting. <laughs> the, like, no, like this is legit good investigative journalism in this. So, because back in July, we discussed this story where California had decertified a supposed union for workers in the legal marijuana business that was not actually a union, didn't actually represent workers. It, ex- it was just a front organization that existed solely for the purpose of dodging state labor law. Because California's legalization of, of recreational marijuana, like many other states, included a requirement that companies have to sign a labor peace agreement with a, and they always put, and thankfully they put this in here, a bona fide labor organization. <laughs> uh, that bona fide is actually a very critical word here because... Well, of course, we oppose labor peace agreements because they impose legally a no-strike clause without giving the workers a chance to decide if that's something that they want as part of a contract. But the attempt to prevent workers from even having a weakened union that has signed a labor peace agreement and just putting this fake front in there is much worse. And unfortunately, now uh, we found out through more investigations from MJ Biz Daily that the problem of fake unions in the the weed industry in California is a lot worse than previously thought. As uh, reporters for MJ Biz Daily found when they reviewed state records, they flagged 10 more supposed unions registered in the state's marijuana industry that appear to also be fake organizations. Uh, The reporter's review found at least 83 businesses in the state had signed agreements with these organizations to comply with California law, including some larger firms like Jeter, Unrivaled Brands, and Glasshouse Brands. And the Teamsters, who had filed the complaint that led to the disqualification of the fake union we talked about in that earlier story back in July, they have now since filed complaints against two of the newly discovered fake organizations as well. Uh, And UFCW Local 5, who has also been organizing marijuana uh, industry workers in California, say that they plan to file complaints against the other eight, with one UFCW organizer telling reporters, quote, we know it's a sham, end quote. And now, in response, though, we've got a counter, because lawyers for the disqualified so-called Professional Technical Union Local 33... I remember that one. (laughs) Or ProTech... (laughs) Uh, they have made statements saying that they will appear the ruling, but MJ Biz Daily went and looked through the court records and there has been no appeal filed, uh, likely because even the lawyers for this fake union, uh, know that the union is fake. (laughs) Yeah. It's a totally like indefensible situation. Also local 33 Freemasonry detected. <laughs> All right, not not an area I have a lot of knowledge. About. I, did, I didn't so expect that, that one. <laughs> um, but yeah, so the the so called unions identified by MJ Biz Daily reporters as suspicious and likely fake include the incredibly specific and easily identifiable names such as the National Agricultural Workers Union, the National Production Workers Union, the Coalition of Independent Unions and the industrial professional and technical workers. Uh, th- okay, so one of these, though, does upset me because a uh, coalition of independent unions uh, it does... Yeah, that's an actual thing yeah, like, in, the, in the Pacific Northwest. 
Like, yeah, I I really I and also I was like hoping that that would get bigger with a lot of the independent unions so that they could coordinate more. But then, you know, we got this fake bullshit going on really sucks. Well, and also, if you were at all imaginative, it would be coalition of independent labor unions and you would just use COIL as your acronym because oh, COIL is a badass yeah. acronym. But instead, you have the kind of uh, uh, CEO brain making up these union names that gives you logistics companies like Logistex and International <laughs> Transport Associated or whatever. <laughs> yeah, although a lot of those when they're like uh, logistics companies are just our CIA fronts. That's True. why they have the bland names. Uh, but... Who's, say, yeah, who's so, saying these aren't, though? Like, let's well, be real. <laughs> you know, they could be. I'm not I mean, saying they, they are. are. I'm just saying it's possible that they are. <laughs> I mean, New conspiracy look, theory just dropped. We've got to look well, into this look, one. I mean, a, a lot of the states that have implemented new laws legalizing recreational marijuana, they include provisions to have people who formerly sold drugs illegally wrapped into the industry. Now, the CIA continues to sell drugs illegally all over mm-hmm. the world, so perhaps they're just trying to get in on some of that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and look, we're not saying that people who were incarcerated for selling drugs shouldn't get a leg up in no. the legal industry. That's true. They absolutely should. They just shouldn't be intelligence assets, which <laughs> unfortunately... A lot of big-time drug dealers were and are. So that just is what it is. But but anyways, <laughs> getting, getting back to this story. So uh, several of these supposed unions, like the National Agriculture Work- Workers Union, where I'm just like, the United Farm Workers already exists. Like, mm-hmm. you are, that's not real. <laughs> mm-hmm. But several of these supposed organizations have filed no paperwork whatsoever with the Department of Labor, uh, something you would think a union that would have members and would do negotiation would have done. And many of them that do have paperwork filed with the DOL list no affiliated workers in the marijuana industry. <laughs> so, I mean, it they didn't even, like, cover their tracks very well on this shit. So, I mean, it's one of these things, though, that I do think is emblematic of just... Bosses are always going to try and find new ways to avoid paying their workers. Like, even in these cases where the law was written for them, they're like, yeah, we're going to make you recognize a union, but we're going to impose a no-strike clause on them, so it's really not that bad. Even that, (laughs) the bosses are still too fucking greedy to accept. Incredible way of snatching failure from the jaws of success. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and even if, you know, it doesn't end up that it's, like, you know, CIA people who started this thing. I mean, like, I wouldn't be surprised if it's some, like, Littler Mendelssohn goon who thought yeah. this up. No, I mean, I, I mean, I, I, like, generally, I think most of them, it's just a standard cash grab. You have somebody mm-hmm. who's like, look, you have a problem. The law says you have to have a union, but you don't want a union. I... And have paperwork <laughs> that I can do to make it look like you have a union and you slip me a check and then here we go. Now you, you're problem solved. I've made some money. Everything's fine. <laughs> yeah, and all for four low, low payments of $320 million. Um, <laughs> and as we all know, Littler Mendelssohn is not a CIA cutout. They've, they're an FBI cutout. Use your head. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, speaking of, we gotta move to uh starbucks because like they just do not stop with their bullshit but this time we're actually going to be talking about starbucks in canada Mm -hmm. as reported by uh the canadian site the tie 
Uh, I think Star- Tai. Tai. Okay. Yeah. Starbucks announced this week that they will be closing their only union store in Vancouver. Hmm. Workers at the city's Dunbar Street location won card won a card check election about six months ago, and now the store is closing for what the company called a natural lease exp- expiry. It's just a natural phenomenon of lease expiration, folks. You know what I've noticed is actually a natural thing that corporate leases tend to do is renew. The natural <laughs> behavior of a corporate lease is to get renewed. Uh-huh. I, I just love this this portrait that they're painting of how... Like, I'm just trying to imagine how business would operate if that was a legitimate reason. Just be like, <laughs> look, this is just how landlords work. We don't know why, but they only will sign us a lease for one year, and they won't mm-hmm. renew it, and they force us to leave. I'm just imagining, like, chain restaurants converting to, like, Bedouin-style nomadic tents <laughs> where they'd have to, like, move from well, space like- to space and set up. Look, every midsize or small city has that one location that has a new business spring up in it year after year, summer after summer. Now imagine if every single business in town was like that. Like your Dunham Sports used to be a Chili's, used to be a PNC Bank, used to be a Foot Locker. And that's just going back to 2018. (laughs) (laughs) That Yeah, that would make it a uh, natural phenomenon. But I mean, as usual, the companies are this com- companies like this are lying to the people of Vancouver about what they're actually doing, which is retaliating against the workers for unionizing. Mm-hmm. Starbucks closed one of the city's few other union locations at the end of last year, despite its prime location. I mean, I think that that is highlighting how uh, purposeful this is. Uh, especially, I mean, when we look at the percentage of stores that are closed versus, you know, mm-hmm. when it comes to like what percentage of those are union, it is always a very high percentage of union stores that are closing out of the stores that do close. Much as it has been done in the U.S., the company initially responded to the recent union election wins at stores in Canada by punishing union stores by refusing to grant them raises, which, I mean, actually, this reading this story made me want to uh, get better uh, uh, a better understanding of Canadian labor law, because I, I feel like maybe that's the next step for our, our show is to, to get a better grasp on some of that, because it's like we know the NLRB and U.S. labor law really well. But uh, for this, I feel like that would be a ULP. Uh, It definitely would in the United States, at least. But well, I mean, and the the USW, the because this they were organized with the steelworkers in Canada. They did file charges of breaking Canadian labor law. I just don't know if they have like a special term for that, like we have ULPs. Right. Right. Yeah, because they had filed charges when the company refused to extend raises to the union stores, but event they eventually dropped the charges because they reached a deal with the company to provide those raises and back pay to unionized workers. So that's one of those cases with this story that it's like, oh, well, so the steel workers are actually able to force the the company to turn around on that. That's great. And so they appear to have just been like, oh, all right, well, if we can't use that method, mm-hmm. well, we'll just fucking close the store. Yeah. Well, and I mean, it's no surprise that Starbucks tried to pull this bullshit because as Starbucks Workers United has pointed out, the company has become one of the most prolific violators of U.S. labor law in recent history, with over 600 ULPs having been filed with the uh, with 200 workers illegally fired in retaliation for organizing and only 28 getting their jobs back from NLRB orders. Uh, That is the kind of thing going back to the grinder story. Why Dan has a little 
bit of you know pessimism in that Semex bargaining order when it is so clear that Starbucks has been doing all of these horrible things, firing over to firing you know two hundred or more workers illegally. And only getting 28 back so far. And it's really only the ones that get the massive like news publicity, like the, what was it, the Nashville 7 or, or what is it? The, the Memphis 7. Memphis 7, right, right. Yeah, well, and, and just like to tack on one, one other story just to you know, round out some of uh, Starbucks' malfeasance this week. Uh, you know, one of those uh, workers who was illegally fired by Starbucks, uh, Haya O'Day, who was a worker who helped unionize her store in Wilmington, North Carolina. Well, she tried to transfer to another store in Chapel Hill where she was moving for college, but she was denied transfer even though multiple locations were hiring. Uh, Like, basically, because I was reading this, it was a story by Michael Sonato in The Guardian where... The stores are like, yeah, we're hiring. And then she's like, hey, can I transfer? And then you hear like muffled voices on the other side of the line. Oh, actually, we're not hiring. Hmm. It's just like that level of blatant horseshit. And I think, though, like this, one of the things that this sort of thing, whether it's, you know, the, the, the retaliatory closing of stores, the refusal to allow people to transfer and stuff like that, uh, that's one of those points where I like, I want to highlight, like, even if, the NLRB starts ruling on Semex bargaining orders in the best ways possible, the way we hope they do, that there's still a lot of limitations because that only affects the election. It doesn't affect the actual bargaining process. So like even where the workers have successfully won, which is a big hurdle and we, I don't want to try to make people pessimistic. You should still do it. But like, again, this, the idea that like that's going to be some panacea when there's nothing from the NLRB again, over a year, Starbucks, almost two years. Yeah, it's been like, two almost. That Starbucks has completely refused to bargain. There isn't a single contract. And it's just an obvious violation of like dozens of U.S. labor laws, and yet there's nothing to force them to change that. And so that's why it's like we want to highlight so much things like we talked about last week, the upcoming Day of Action, which is on September 14th, by Starbucks Workers United and community supporters to go to non-union stores and show your support and help encourage folks and also to continue to put more pressure on Starbucks because it really, it's it's just going to be the workers coming together and all of us in the community are really the only thing that are going to be able to actually force Starbucks to come to the table. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. If you didn't get an opportunity to do the customer action the first time this is your opportunity coming up right around the time of the uh, uaw strike which we will talk about a little bit later in the episode but first we need to do a little bit more uh university news yeah i mean as long as we're talking about starbucks let's talk about cornell where we recently talked about a successful fight to kick starbucks off the campus for their war on workers and we've also seen recently that grad students at ithaca new york's cornell university have launched a union of their own so this week grad workers announced the formation of cornell graduate students united affiliated with the ue with hundreds already signed up they announced the union drive on social media saying quote we need this to have the power to to negotiate with Cornell for improved wages, healthcare benefits, workplace safety measures, affordable housing, and more. We want a union so we can have all the support we need to excellent researchers and teachers that we came here to be. We aren't alone in the fight for better working conditions for graduate workers. Other institutions, Johns Hopkins, MIT, Northwestern, Harvard, Columbia, Brown, NYU, and more, have all achieved huge wins and better conditions by unionizing." End quote. And I think that's a really great statement. Not 
not least of all because they included a fairly long list of universities where we're seeing this same energy. And I think that kind of like uh, that bolstering effect, especially within academia, within Starbucks, within a bunch of other, you know, within Amazon and that industry uh, can be one of the most powerful forces in a nationwide labor movement. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We talk so often about why how union victories like we I mean one of the reasons why we were praising the Teamsters contract so much was because it inspires people to fight more and that's exactly what we're seeing here. Yeah, I mean and it's also I think shows to the just the specific like not just that like a strike somewhere can inspire strikes elsewhere, which is true, but also like that specific intentional blending of struggles where you have like the Starbucks workers are organizing, and then they start getting fucked over in Ithaca. So the Cornell students are like, hey, that's messed up. We want to side with them. And and so the Starbucks workers are like, oh, hey, thank you. And they work together. And then through that process of shared struggle, the students on campus are like, hey, you know, this whole union idea, <laughs> that seems like a pretty good idea. And so now you have the Cornell students forming a graduate student union, which I think is fantastic. <laughs> Absolutely. And I mean, speaking to the need specifically for improved health care, we heard from PhD biochemistry student Don Gerard Condé, who said, quote, most of us haven't seen a dentist in over a year. A lot of us with disabilities haven't seen our specialists in that same amount of time. But Cornell's estimated cost of living for graduate student workers does not take into consideration those of us who have disabilities or health concerns, end quote. And, you know, Condé is not alone in this being a primary concern. Organizers polled grad student workers across campus and have assembled a set of key bargaining goals that they will be fighting for, including comprehensive health care coverage and accessibility, safety and equity in the workplace, fair wages and compensation, accessible housing and transportation, support for international workers, and support for parents and caregivers, all of which are incredibly important things to fight for, and all of which are basically echoes of the exact same issues that we've seen academic workers fighting for at institutions across the country. Yeah, and really highlights how uh, worker struggle can be a big part of community struggle as well with, you know, especially that last one, support for parents and caregivers. Mm -hmm. Well, and also I think like the fact that we're seeing these consistent demands, you know, just shows to like what the university business model in this country is based on, which is like not creating these isolated pockets of uh, uh, a slower paced, like more erudite uh, community where everybody just works together. Uh, no, it's the same fucking capitalist business model that they use in everything else. And their goal is to have a small crust of, you know, the, the trustees agents, the administrators who make, big fat salaries and everybody else gets fucked over and doesn't get benefits and doesn't get pensions and doesn't get health care and doesn't get a living wage. And they just grind those conditions as low as they can and they jack tuition up so that they can give more and more profits to shareholders. And meanwhile, the healthcare industry, so-called, is furiously copying their notes at a breakneck pace. <laughs> um so yeah, I mean, Cornell GSU says that they plan to fight to add dental and vision coverage to their existing healthcare plans, as well as more coverage for dependents and reproductive and gender-affirming care. They also will demand a fair grievance procedure, something that's really important and we see brought up a lot, free bus passes, and legal aid for international students. And that's another one of the big things that I really appreciate about all of these academic organizing drives, is they seem to be really keen on going out of their way to make sure that the, the gains they secure are not just for 
the American mm-hmm. citizen students. It, it, it applies to everybody who's come to this institution to pursue learning or to pursue career opportunities or whatever the case may be. And I think that's just so critical to the overall organizing effort here. Yeah, I mean, and not only like making sure that they've, they, I mean, they've highlighted disabled students, mm-hmm. but I mean, like the the free bus passes and other things like that really help create uh, end the fact that university is a tiered system in that many people cannot afford to go to university because, like, what they're they're gonna have to work a job while they're doing this, just not because they're you know they're paying their tuition back, which is a huge cost after graduating or or leaving, but like just while you're there you have to have a place to live you have to eat food you have to pay for transportation mm-hmm. well and like, it, let's say it's expensive even- Let's say even if you have the money and the access to all of those things, if you have like a mobility issue or you require some kind of special support for something, or let's say you're an international student who might face an extra amount of racism, be, like all of these things are going to contribute to a really negative experience for you and might influence your decision to like give up on on trying to pursue a, a life within this institution, even for a short while. So. Uh, it's really great that they're focusing on on all of these issues and not holding back on things like even, you know, reproductive and gender affirming care. Those are wildly important as well. So Cornell students have tried unionizing before back in 2018, just five years ago. The election was ruled a razor close loss, despite the fact that Cornell broke the law when the graduate students dean implied that graduate student numbers would be reduced if they unionized as ruled by an arbitrator. But this time there is a nationwide upsurge behind the students who have already flexed their muscle by kicking Starbucks off campus. As PhD economics student Takshil Sakdev said at a rally on Wednesday, September 6th, quote, as economists, we have modeled countless situations where the party that that has more bargaining power ends up with the greater share of the pie. Right now, we're doing all the baking, but Cornell is eating the whole damn pie, end quote. (laughs) I think that's... Very, Smart words very, from a PhD economics student. <laughs> yeah, I just it's a very very funny like economics like pie analogy, but also mm-hmm. like you know workers solidarity and, and like the I think that another really important line is there that the party with more bargaining power ends up with a greater share of the pie. This is why we organize, folks, because we actually want the pie because we as workers create society. Well, like, like we should have control over it. And it's, it's so critical that he said more bargaining power, not more resources, not more capital, not more money, more bargaining power, because bargaining power exists primarily in the workers. It just is diffuse. And that's a deliberate choice by the management. And organizing is a way to ma- take that diffuse power and aim it at things. Absolutely. And speaking of some people who have been uniting their diffuse power for... Mm. I think almost six months now. Uh, Let's do a quick update on where things stand with the writers and actors strike that's going on right now. Because, you know, the unity of the writers and actors continues to hold strong on the picket lines. There continue to be, you know, big uh, energetic picket lines all over L.A., New York, and other spots around the country. Uh, But while the writers and actors unity continues to hold as strong as the day the strike began... The boss's unity seems to be starting to slip. 
uh, because there have been a few individual exceptions granted to the strike by small studios and distributors like A24 to allow them to work after agreeing to the core demands of the unions, which of course undermines the AMPTP's argument that their demands are unreasonable because, wait a minute, if all these tiny studios can agree to it, how come big ones like Netflix and Disney can't? So, But this week, we saw the biggest single defection from among the major studio names when AMC Studios signed a deal with the WGA and SAG-AFTRA to allow production to resume on two spinoffs of The Walking Dead and the new season of Interview with the Vampire. So I apologize that this isn't for better content. <laughs> but, but, but <laughs> I've been watching important. Interview with the Vampire and it fucking sucks. <laughs> <laughs> so like, look, I don't need any more Walking Dead, but the reason why this is big is that, you know... AMC Studios is the production studio for the name for a television station you have heard of. <laughs> and they're not keeping closed ranks with the rest of the bosses. They're like, look, yeah, we don't like paying these folks any more than the rest of y'all, but we got to get shit going. And what they're asking for is really not an existential crisis for us. We can pay them more money. We can give them working protections and we'll be all right, which is a very dangerous thing. <laughs> Uh, for the rest of the bosses to be hearing from some others amongst their membership. Because if that starts to go around, more of the other bosses might start thinking the same thing. <laughs> now, you know, again, the, the company uh, here, uh, you know, AMC, try, continued to try and keep up this stern face of, no, no, we're, we're standing strong. Uh, we, we've, just in early August, they were like, we, we've stockpiled enough new content to last through the entirety of 2024. <laughs> but, um... Hard to really believe that when just a few weeks later they're like, okay, well, we really need to make these new Walking Dead spinoffs, so fuck it. Let's just agree to their demands. <laughs> it's like, maybe you didn't actually have as much stockpiled as you were claiming, and maybe a lot of the stuff we're hearing from the studios is actually a bunch of lies. I mean, sometimes I think that the people in these studios really did think that they were going to be able to turn around and just whip some stuff up on the AI machines, and they're like, we're fine through 2024, and then they tried using AI real right. quick, and they were like, oh, fuck, this is not at all <laughs> what we thought it was. <laughs> yeah, exactly, and, and, and so, you know, this is, I think, a really big turning point, potentially, in the strike, because... Again, we've already seen if A24 can afford to give the workers what they're asking for, and again, if AMC can do it, there's absolutely no reason Disney, Discovery, HBO, Netflix, any of these big companies can't do it. And the pressure is not just coming you know, here now from the, the workers themselves. It's also starting to come from shareholders because this week... Warner Brothers Discovery, the new conglomerate that was formed earlier this year, headed by uh, CEO David Zasloff, who paid himself a quarter of a billion dollars, um, they announced that they were revising their earnings estimate for the year downward by $500 million <laughs> because of the impacts of the strike that they claim isn't having an impact on them. So one-fifth of Zaslav's salary. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, and I thought this was really like summed up really well by, uh, Mary McNamara, the culture columnist for the LA times who, uh, put it in a recent piece this way saying, quote, the writers and actors have already won the battle of solidarity and righteousness. The question now is how long before the studios get over themselves and make a deal. Yeah, absolutely. 
And that's not from the Union. That's from the L.A. Times, <laughs> not a uh, you know traditional hotbed of like socialist labor organizing. <laughs> so I think we are starting to turn a corner here, where the studios are starting to realize that maybe this strike is uh, actually costing them a lot more than they thought it would. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, so in our next story, though, we need to go back to Canada and talk about a community like labor organization that's organized mostly by Indian workers called the Naujawan uh, Support Network or NSN, where uh, they have been uh, fighting to, you know, end migrant abuse. And we had talked about them a little while back about uh, fighting wage theft. And uh, this week, they've announced a new campaign to pressure abusive business owners. On Twitter, the NSN announced their support for workers at the Live Freely Foods, Live Freely a Foods. bakery in Mississauga, Ontario, who marched on their boss who who marched on their boss on Labor Day to demand thousands of dollars in unpaid wages. The industrial bakery closed at the end of August after months of unpaid wages and broken promises to make workers whole. Most of the bakery workers were immigrants from the Punjab region of India, where they were forced to work 12-hour shifts every week. And this this story actually is pretty horribly egregious and really shows how much business uh, owners think they can get away with. Yeah, and like a lot of food production um you know, companies that you may not have heard of, you've probably still ingested their products because these mm-hmm. show up at Walmart and Costco and other major retailers, all while Live Freely refuses to pay workers overtime, provide any vacation or any other legally required benefits, and they even refuse to pay Ontario's $15.50 minimum wage, which is still criminally low, but they mm-hmm. instead paid their workers at the most $14 an hour. And back in the early summer, the factory bosses began paying workers only part of their salary, telling them that the company was going through a rough financial situation and that they would be repaid later. This was not only a lie, but also completely illegal. Yeah. Unfortunately, though, this this sort of thing is super common Mm -hmm. with businesses that primarily uh, employ migrant workers, because a big part of that business model, like baked into the business model, is exploiting the fact that a lot of folks who are new to any country that they've moved to don't don't know the labor laws, especially in very capitalist countries like in the Imperial Corps, where the governments go out of their way to try and make sure that the workers don't know their labor rights. Look, I, I live in fucking Michigan. I could drive to Ontario in less than four hours and I don't know hardly anything about Ontario mm-hmm. labor law. You expect people who just moved here, possibly under very difficult circumstances, to have that kind of knowledge? It's it's bald face manipulation. Yeah, and mm-hmm. we report labor. I was I just know. talking about how we, <laughs> we should know Canada's labor law better. <laughs> Yeah, and and so like this 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 group, uh, the Najwan Support Network, we had last talked about them, I think, over a year ago, where they were fighting against uh, wage theft in, I believe, Brampton, Ontario, um, for workers there. And so this is the nearby community of Mississauga. And unfortunately, you know, after weeks and weeks of telling the workers, "Oh, hey, no, we're, we'll get you your full wages soon. We're just turning a corner. It's just a rough patch for the company." The company closed. They did a rug pull, which they had clearly been planning the whole time, leaving the workers holding the bag and out thousands of dollars in stolen wages. As reported by the Najwan Support Network, at least 50 of the bakery workers are owed unpaid wages, 
And it's not just a couple of bucks. It's unpaid wages of between $2,500 and $13,000 in unpaid wages. If that low number is $2,500, I mean, like, that's ridiculous. Imagine, like, for one, being out $2,500 is already tough. Mm-hmm. 13000 Well, and considering the fact that the most any worker was paid at this plant was $14 an hour, $13,000 in unpaid back wages is nearly half a year of salary. Like, that's just absolutely absurd. In response, workers have begun daily pickets to demand their stolen wages back, and they've steadily been joined by members of the community, including the NSN. The company has tried to evade its responsibilities by declaring bankruptcy, but the network is working to hold them to account because Canada's bankruptcy laws require that the company directors be responsible for the last six months of wages of workers. The network is committed to standing with the workers and continuing to grow public pressure to force Live Freely's thieving owners to return the wages that they stole from their workers. The fight goes on there, but the work that the NSN uh, is doing, I really wanted to highlight this because I think organizations like this are a fantastic example of the way community organizations can come together to support the labor movement and can just build stronger communities like as a whole. Like these, like there is no state defense network for workers, despite as much as the government will try and tell you there is with things like the NLRB. But our communities can form such networks, and I think that the work that the NSN is doing is is a fantastic example of that. Yeah, well, and it's it's also like, you know, if you look at the actual constitution, uh, I don't mean like a document, I mean like the actual, like, uh, the actual constitutive people that form communities, the actual way that a community is constituted, workers are the community and the community mm-hmm. is made up of workers. So this, this divide between community organizing and labor organizing is a totally artificial one. And it's, it's mm-hmm. amazing to see groups like this uh, tackle that divide head on and, and build bridges across it. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a really, really good point because so much of like, you know, I mean, sure, there are definitely, you know, spaces for community organizing to help in, you know, specific groups of people. But, you know, we don't see often enough these groups, you know, really supporting workers. And I think that it's really great to see that. But, you know, I think we need to move to the big story of that's right. what is going to be, I don't know, I was going to say this week, but really it's going to be probably longer than that because mm-hmm. we need to do an update on the big three uh, automaker negotiations because from what it looks like, I don't want to you know jump the gun on this. Well, actually, I totally am. I mean, like, because <laughs> we're counting the days until we see this, like, the largest strike of the year come to pass. And unlike the UPS uh, situation, I don't feel like we're going to see a deal come in near the last minute to avoid this strike. Honestly, I think even calling these negotiations is being overly generous to the bosses. <laughs> Absolutely true. <laughs> Got them. Yeah, because they just, like, the counter-proposals that we saw this week are a fucking joke. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, let's, I mean, yeah, we shouldn't repeat ourselves too much. Let's jump straight to, like, the negotiations. Last week we talked about Ford's awful offer, uh, and this week we get to talk about GM and Stellantis's. But uh, we're going to start with GM. But anyway, just just to to get to GM and Stellantis's and their you know, so-called counter-proposals. The UAW had, you know, originally had to file ULPs for bad faith bargaining since they had not, GM and Stellantis, actually put them forward. They then called those frivolous. But 
immediately were like, no, 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 we're we're getting the proposals. No, we're we, we're gonna do it. We were we were gonna give those to you the whole time. <laughs> we don't know why you filed those UOP charges, and then we immediately gave you the counteroffer. <laughs> like, <laughs> shut up. <laughs> yeah. Uh. Well, let, again, let's just start in on this. Uh, Last week we we talked about Ford and how you know it was should have been easy to get over the nine percent raise that they over offered. four years yeah over four years uh, GM did it folks they they really knocked this one out of the park with instead of nine ten percent oh man we've gone up a whole one percent we're so close to reasonable yeah oh, wait no nowhere I, close <laughs> it's really important to remember that the workers are demanding a 40 percent increase over the life of the contract right now and while this demand may seem like which, it's, which by the way in my opinion is a moderate demand <laughs> yeah exactly that's what i was gonna get to because like you know there's it, a high number but it, it's actually incredibly reasonable when we look at the the facts that since 2003 the average auto workers wages on the production line has dropped a whopping 30 percent like with that they're just trying to get back to like a, some semblance of a good living of some sort mm-hmm. And so, you know, this means that along with the other things that the UAW members are demanding, this contract isn't overstepping in its demands one bit on any of the fronts. Mm-hmm. And again, like Ford, GM has refused to give back COLA and has instead offered lump sums. They refuse to end tiers, improve retirement benefits, or improve job security. It really seems like despite the 1% difference in the pay offer, the big three are mostly in line with each other at this point uh, and, I mean, are basically telling the workers that they have to go on strike uh, if they don't want to see their conditions continue to get worse. Yeah, it's shocking how incredibly committed the big three are to offering lump sum payments instead of mm-hmm. meaningful advantages for these workers. And it, I cannot stress this enough: unless the lump sum, is, excuse me, unless the lump sum is a million dollars, it's <laughs> it's not worth anything. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well. To get into that, because like I just want to hit on that for for two things. Because one, and I won't belabor this point because we've talked about it before, but just just as a, a high level thing, as John was saying, like lump sum payments in these negotiations are almost always just a bribe. Mm-hmm. Like the whole idea is that they don't want to raise base pay for future workers, so their hope is they can bribe current workers with a lump sum, so that the next contract negotiations, the base wage rate won't really be significantly higher than it previously was, and the union is starting from the same shitty bargaining position that it was in before. But the thing that I really also want to point out about this, and I think this plays into this negotiation specifically, the the, the big three, is I actually think a big part of the reason that companies are doing that now is PR. I think it's part of their war on the union because then, because one of the things, when you look at like comments that you'll see online under a lot of these posts about the negotiations, you'll see a decent chunk of people or bots or plants, whatever they are, but pumping out these idiotic arguments that like the the auto workers are already overpaid and, and I think we should de- debunk some of them in a minute but I just want to point out that that's who I really think a lot of these lump sums are targeted at is to say is so they can then go in the press and say look we offered these workers a $10,000 payment how many of you workers across America would love to get an instant check for $10,000 mm-hmm. and the UAW turned us down they're just so unreasonable I really think that's a big part of their strategy here. But 
there's a few, but on that that point about the comments, I, I wanted to take a minute, you know, while we're talking about the big three negotiations as we're approaching a likely strike this week, to I think we should debunk some of the core arguments that they that are being thrown out there. One of them, and we talked about this one last week, but it's the one I've seen most commonly, and and it's to the point that the UAW was directly addressing it in their their messaging this week, which is the idea that cars are expensive now because of workers' wages. <laughs> and Lena, you already gave the data point that easily debunks that argument that, again, like you said, since 2003, auto workers' wages have gone down by 30%, and yet car prices have almost doubled. <laughs> yeah, it just doesn't really add up. I mean, if somehow it's the workers' fault that cars are so expensive, but yet somehow their wages have gone down and car prices have gone up, there's got to be something bringing those the, that information together. Look, workers just like to make cars more expensive. We don't want to be able to buy them. What's so hard to understand? Yeah, again, that that argument is trying to get you to ignore the existence of surplus value, to ignore the existence of profits and all of the money that is extracted wastefully by CEOs and by shareholders from the hard labor of these workers. Because really, ultimately, you want to know why those car prices are so high? It's price gouging. That's it. It's monopolistic control of the industry. That's all it is. And so... The next one that I wanted to debunk is that, you know, the one that people will throw out there, this is the next tier, this is the I'm just trying to be reasonable guy that I see all over the place of uh, where they'll throw out, well, look, you know, auto workers deserve good wages, they deserve good conditions, but, you know, these companies, they have to stay competitive. The big three, they're competing against Honda and Toyota and VW and all these other companies, and if the UAW isn't reasonable, they would drive the big three out of business. Absolutely brain dead take. Next, you will tell me it's a job for teenagers. <laughs> yeah, no, I know. It's it's ludicrous, but it's it's one of the things that you see thrown out there where people first off, I'm like, first, you are mistakenly assuming that you share the same interests as the company owners, which you don't. <laughs> None of you unless you is the son of like one of the owners of the companies, you you should not give a shit about uh how they do. But more importantly, this goes back to the previous uh argument because again, the Workers' wages have nothing to do realistically with the current pricing of the automobiles. And in the same case, they have nothing to do with the good or bad financial situation of the company compared to billions and billions, literally dozens of billions of dollars having been extracted from the company that it could use to do all sorts of things. Invest in battery plants, pay the workers more, give workers time off, a billion other things, and are just taken out and used to buy mansions in Northern Virginia. That's how like, mafia works. <laughs> yeah, so that's the issue. If, if there's any issue of competitiveness, cut the fucking CEO salary and you'll unleash a whole bunch of money you can use for all sorts of purposes. Mm -hmm. I mean, that guy's not really a System 5, you know? He's just really just a figurehead <laughs> to steal, siphon money off. Yeah. Exactly. Well, listen to our cybernetics series, folks. Mm -hmm. And so... <laughs> The last one, and this one at least has parallels with the actual functioning of the companies, which is the, look, I'm sympathetic. I think the work, this is the like jaded realist argument. Mm -hmm. Look, I think the workers deserve everything they get, but we just have to be realistic and look at the situation. You know, if the workers keep asking for so much more money, they're just going to be replaced by robots or the companies will close the plants and move them to Mexico. Bill Maher, I believe that's his take. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. Yes. Notorious exactly. piece of shit, take. Bill Maher. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so the problem with that one is, like, first off, 
uh, and, and we talked about this actually in our, our recent series on the ILA that we're still doing, uh, viewing automation as inevitable and completely out of the hands of the workers, that is how the bosses want you to think about technology. Yeah, go read Norbert Wiener's letter to Walter Ruther if you have any misconceptions about how this shit goes down. <laughs> because, and that's the thing, because people talk about like Sean Fain and the union's proposal for a 32-hour work week as being extreme or ridiculous. First off, I would argue those same people would say that same thing back in the day. You want to go to a 40-hour work week instead of a 48-hour? That's what does nobody want to work anymore? Uh, yeah. They've been saying the same thing every time. What do you mean you don't want to come in on Saturday, you precious little child of God? What the fuck is wrong with you? <laughs> yeah, it's it's been the same thing, but now, but it's like people think of the forty-hour work week now. It's been reified. People mm -hmm. think of it as this thing that fell from the sky rather than a product of class struggle. And the thirty-two-hour work week would be the same thing. And it's a lo completely logical response to increased productivity of technology. Because again, like, okay, so we have all these robots that can do more work. Oh, well, we're going to use them to replace you. Are you? Well, and Maybe and that's up for debate. Here's, here's the interesting <laughs> thing is that if you go back and you look at all of the quote-unquote futurist predictions from the middle of the century, they're all saying, oh, by the year 2000, we'll all be working 16 hours a week and enjoying the yeah, luxuries that only, only a king could ever dream of today. And it's like... Well, no, actually, all of that productivity did happen. It's just all been siphoned up to your Bezoses and your Musks and your Gateses and all of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and we're going to talk about this a little more with Stellantis' proposal here in just a second. But both the automation threat and the threat of moving plants are not – they're not forces of nature. They are choices by the bosses, and they are choices that can be fought by the workers both here – and in other countries that they are threatening to move plants to. So none of those are valid arguments against any of the workers' demands. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we should really get to, you know, what the what Stellantis is offering. Uh, but first, we need to do we do need to talk about the, the classic threat that they pulled out to intimidate workers, which was to move plants to Mexico. Uh, and I mean, they're basically saying that that the UAW needs to have a concessionary contract. Otherwise, they are going to try to, you know, lower their costs of production by going to Mexico. And I mean, it's not really an idle threat either, because, you know, in a recent article by the American Prospect, Luis Feliz Leon spoke uh to, with Stellantis workers forced to upend their whole lives when the company closed its Belvedere, uh, uh, Illinois plant and moved that to Mexico, laying off 1,300 workers. The company has been so cruel as to claim they might even reopen the plant if workers abandon their key contract demands and don't strike. <coughs> Lordstown. <laughs> which, mm -hmm. yeah, which is, I mean, we know that this is a lie because, I mean, they're going to move facilities where they want regardless of whether or not workers fight back. In fact, if anything, it makes it more difficult when they actually do fight back. I mean, this highlights the, another one of the really important demands that the UAW has put forward, which is the right to strike within the contract over plant closures. And I would just clarify that, like, the bosses will try 
and move facilities around, whether the workers fight back or not. But it's only if the workers fight back that they can ever have a say over it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And it's super important because, you know, there's telling you to just sit back and, like, take whatever you're they're going to give you when we all know that the only way that things ever change is through struggle. Yeah, and the thing with this is that I think is just so nasty about the whole – yeah, we did just lay off 1300 of you, but now that you're asking for something, maybe we'll maybe we'll bring that back if you just stop asking for better conditions. I'm just like first of all, go directly to jail. Mm-hmm. Uh uh-huh. <laughs> uh but but secondly, <laughs> I the detachment from reality that so many of these bosses have. I'm like, you guys have been shitting all over auto workers for decades. And now you expect them to believe these sorts of promises? Like, how dumb do you think people are? Like, you have, again, Waddle workers' wages have gone down mm-hmm. over the last 20 years, and you expect them to believe promises from you? <laughs> like, what, what the fuck? Let's be clear. Over the last 50 years, the big three have single-handedly destroyed one of the most culturally important and iconic cities in America and turned it into mm-hmm. the butt end of racist jokes through their gross mismanagement and malpractice in the city. And, like, they intend to do the same thing to the entire industry across the country unless these workers stand up and fucking fight back and then every time they do the bosses come back around and employ mafia style tactics where they're like pretty nice plant you had there in Belvedere maybe we could make that happen for you again meanwhile even if they do reopen the plant they're not going to hire as many people they're not going to offer the same wages and they're not going to hire the same fucking people back Mm -hmm. exactly Well, and I think that it's also really important to look at this from the perspective of labor when it comes to, you know, Mexico and like with the UAW, because the independent labor movement in Mexico has really built up some strength. Uh, And I mean, the CTM, which is the Confederation de Trabajadores de Mexico, which is like the big kind of business union, almost like, you know, the the AFL, but not, I mean, the AFL is not a business union necessarily. It's like if the AFL was one giant union. Union, but bad. <laughs> uh huh. Yeah. Well, uh, the CTM has actually had to negotiate better contracts because of the pressure put on them from the independent movements at like uh, at Salau and uh, mm-hmm. what was the other city? Uh, well, there was the VU manufacturing plant uh, that was one of the Maculadores, but I don't remember exactly which uh, border city it was in. Well, I'm sure we're going to end up covering these sorts of things again uh, soon. But, but I mean, really, this has also been really important because the UAW has actually been coordinating with some of these independent movements, which is really important to, you know, basically mm-hmm. take labor out of competition with itself. Because right now... Mexican workers who actually work at Stellantis plants make as little as 250 an hour. Like it's it's really not great the the level of exploitation that's going on there. And so like I was saying the only effective way to like stop the threat of plant closures is to build up power in both countries and improve wages and conditions for Mexican workers. As Sean Fain said in a recent live stream quote They'd have to work full-time for nine years straight to earn enough money to buy a vehicle that they produce. That's criminal, and why we need to support these workers in Salau and everywhere in their fight against GM, end quote. And I mean, I think that 
that one other thing that's really important to point out is that the end of the of labor competition between countries is actually the real end to tears. And that's not to diminish mm-hmm. the demand to, uh, that the union has to end contract tears, but it's the truth. If we really want to end tears, we need to end labor's competition with itself internationally. Well, and that's one of the main things that I've appreciated so much about Fain's administration here mm-hmm. is that they're not just trying to shut down tears within their contract. They're trying to expand the the labor solidarity to part-timers, to retirees, to workers outside the country, to literally everybody they can that's related to the struggle in order to bolster conditions for everyone who's not a boss. <laughs> like, Yeah. I think it's really important, you know, to highlight that that's been one of, I think, the biggest huge turnarounds, you know, Mm -hmm. by the UAW under the new administration has been both we're seeing, you know, embrace of explicit class language in their organizing, but also, again, materially increasing that solidarity and, and, and direct cooperation between the workers here and the workers in Mexico as a big shift from, you know, xenophobically demonizing the workers in other countries. And it, that's a huge step in the right direction. And, and you know, because I think it's, there are a lot of other unions that could take cues from the UAW on this, and we'd be in a much better spot. Yeah, right. Yeah. And it's also just a simple fact of life that if you work for one of the big three here in the United States, you have more in common in every conceivable way with a worker in Salau making two fifty an hour than you ever will with the fucking suits at Stellantis or GM. Yeah. I mean, really, honestly, even with your suit, your direct supervisor, mm-hmm. to be honest. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I mean, so with all of that said, we do actually still have to talk about the Stellantis proposal. Uh, They have been actually offering the highest raises out of all of them. And, you know, you think, oh, they went from 9 to 10. Maybe it's 10 to 11. It's 10 to 14 and a half, you know. 14 and a half is better. But it's not even halfway to what the workers actually need. Remember, they are trying to get 40%, which will make a, which will actually mean that they will get a raise at the end of this. Now, Stellantis has also refused to give COLA, instead offering lump sums of $6,000 year one and $4,500 in both of the next two years. Again, just an absolute insult. And- and just to be clear, because again, I think some it, companies keep doing this where they're like, we're offering a 14.5% raise and then in the world's smallest font over four years because that's not even 4% per year. 14.5 looks like a sizable raise, but when you're like, we're offering you a 3.5% raise and then another 3.5% raise and then another 3.5% raise, that's great, right? You should be so ecstatic about that. No. <laughs> yeah. No, it, it's re- it's ridiculous and, and really uh, just like covert in the way that they're trying to sell their bullshit. Also, I mean, like the other big three companies, they've refused to end tiers and have only offered to like lessen the quote grow in period from eight years down to six, which is the same thing that all of them have have done. Uh, Garbage. And- I mean, beyond that, straight to straight to Sean Fain's trash can. That's mm-hmm. right. That's right. Uh, and beyond that, they have conceded Juneteenth as a paid holiday, which the others have not. Uh, uh, is that true? I thought GM's proposal included that. Maybe it did. I, uh, I actually, I just don't remember reporting it, which is why I wrote it that way. So, I mean, it, uh, all right. So, well, Stellantis has conceded Juneteenth, and we'll uh, check in on the others. But either way, you know. This contract is still just a flaming pile of shit compared to what the workers need. And the other thing that I would point out that we didn't mention in here, all three 
of the offers weirdly have exactly the same proposal for how to deal with temps, which is uh, no restrictions whatsoever on how long somebody can be kept to temp, no restrictions at all on the hours that a temp can be required to, to work, but they are offering a wage increase for the temps to $20 an hour, every single one of the big three offering the exact same raise to $20 an hour, and I'm just like, are you, this idea that they're they're not colluding. <laughs> yeah, are you implying that they're doing illegal business collusion, Dan? Well, well, I mean, here's the thing. I don't like look, I don't want to go too far on this because you know, we do support conceptually the idea of pattern bargaining because again, in, in the same way we want to take workers in the US out of competition with workers in Mexico, we don't want the workers at Chrysler to be in competition with the workers at Ford. But it is very uh, suspicious <laughs> when the companies are pretending that they are negotiating separately and forcing, you know, the, the union to have three separate bargaining teams. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, they are clearly talking to each other. <laughs> right. What you're saying is that they could all easily just be in the same room. Mm hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I mean, like the AMPTP did it. Yeah. And, and it, you know, there's people can have, you know, theoretical arguments over whether there's different balance of forces. I would argue whether these companies, once you've reached the monopolistic stage of capitalism, where we're in, where like Ford isn't really trying to destroy Stellantis. Ford is fine with Stellantis existing. They both have an enormous market share. So like whether they're bargaining as a group in a trade organization or they're bargaining separately, they're going to be working together anyway. Well, and like fucking duopolies and triopolies or whatever can be actually much more fucking effective than straight up mm -hmm. and down monopolies. I mean, just look at the bourgeois electoral system if you need any proof of that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I also just think generally, I think one of the big takeaways from this is that either... The administrations at, at all three of the big three automakers are so incredibly out of touch with reality that they actually think these are good offers. I don't really think that's the answer. Or they all are just, they think that they can take a short strike and win one, which I think is also out of touch with reality. Because again, as we've pointed out, the UAW has, I believe, the biggest strike fund of any union in this country of nearly a billion dollars and a workforce that just voted 97% in favor of striking. Like, these people are not going to be tricked by your bullshit, nor are they going to be quick to tire on the picket line. Like, these are folks who have been getting concessionary contract after concessionary contract for, at this point, like 40 fucking years. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so when September 14th rolls around this week, I don't think there's going to be a lot of hemming and hawing of, oh, do we really want to go out on strike? I think for a lot of these folks, it's going to be like, you know, it's about fucking time. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, I think that that is a, uh, not only a call to action for the workers, but a call to action for you listeners, because really at this point, I don't think that we're avoiding this strike. So look no. up where your local Ford GM and Stellantis manufacturing plants are, because come Friday, it's almost certain that there's going to be picket lines out there and they're going to need your support mm -hmm. hell yeah and and just to be clear while you know unlike ups it's it's not like there's a ford supply plant on every uh, you know in every major city there are a lot of big three automaker plants in places outside of just detroit so like you know like folks in tennessee folks in uh kentucky there are plenty of plants there ohio in indiana there are all sorts of these production facilities so even if you you know don't live in detroit don't just assume that there isn't one near you yeah absolutely 
Well, we've made it through the news, folks. We do... Well, we ran long. That was actually quite a segment there. Uh, we got to do the meme review. And the first one is just a callback to what we just talked about, uh, the Big Three proposal. And this is the Grim Reaper uh, bringing someone it, into the, the abyss. The it's time to go format. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, the, the thing coming with the Grim Reaper this time is the Big Three proposal. And it asks, was I a good proposal? And the Grim Reaper says, no, you are trash, LMAFO. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I also love that as the live streams that Sean Fain has been doing has been going on, he's been putting the trash can in the background and it's getting fuller Mm -hmm. and fuller of paper. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. It's so so good. It's so good. Hell yeah. Uh, Our next meme comes to us from one of our podcast favorites, Cats and Hard Hats. And this just has a cat in a little business suit wearing a hard hat sitting on a construction yard presumably and it says management when i tell them i'm going to need a raise to afford the increasing cost of being alive and then you have the cat saying sounds like a you problem not a me problem (laughs) classic and that is precisely the response you get from management and um there is a quick solution to this you can make it their problem (laughs) (laughs) no exactly that's the thing like that that is the the important uh message really i think of this meme is where it's like you know oftentimes the bosses think that they're insulated from the problems that they create from their workforce but fellow workers it is very easy to prove that they are not correct Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. and then our next one we're going to start with the the top the text on this one and i'll tell you what the picture is afterwards so it's uh in in like uh um asterisks it's uh workers begin unionizing and then management uh we've been planning on giving raises the whole time basically is like hmm and uh what do we see in the photo pinocchio yeah, we, you know, it's so weird that you just started unionizing this week because we've been meaning to board up the bottomless pit in the storeroom for like <laughs> months now. <laughs> oh, man. I thought that was and really so, funny. Uh, this next one, this is actually, this is a comic that's very relevant uh, potentially for you in the future here, mm-hmm. John. <laughs> so this is a, a comic uh, from Sergeant Bacon Burger. <laughs> Uh, This is apparently teleported from the year 2011 Um, (laughs) and it is titled Nina lives alone. And it's, and it's, so you got a couple of people at a business uh, and a boss guy and it's the boss guy starts, Nina just started, needs to see the database. And so the, the, the worker who's been there a while shows, shows her, Oh, here it is. And then the next panel, they're standing there looking at the database, and, and she responds, hmm, my last job, we use scripts to automate these tasks. And the other guy's like thinking, hmm, oh, okay, that's a good idea. And then the next panel, they're they're making a presentation to the boss, pointing at their their new code database, and, and the longtime workers just, check out this upgrade Nina built. And then it, and then it cuts to like an anime excited uh, panel of the boss just cl- like putting his hands together like, amazing, this gives me a great idea. And then it cuts to the next panel with him pointing at the longtime worker, you're fired. <laughs> and then pointing at Nina, pick up his work and triple the output. Yeah. I mean, there's, uh-huh. um, there's a very relevant... A viral reddit post that went around god a long time ago by now but it, it was something to the effect of i picked up a contract working for a company that uses a legacy database system and they need me to manually input thousands of data points every week 
I automated 99% of my tasks and just check in on the scripts for 20 minutes a day, but I still collect the same amount of money. Should I tell them? And everyone on Reddit correctly for once in Reddit's life was like, never (laughs) mention this to anyone. Why are you even posting this right now? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And that's an important thing to remember, which is that sometimes when you have an idea that you think might benefit the company... You don't have to tell them. Yeah, I mean, I just tweeted about this recently. Quietly optimizing my job so that more of my day can be time theft and never (laughs) telling anybody else about it. (laughs) It's the way to do it. It's the way to do it. Um, and then I uh, do any, uh, do any of you have a particular want to do this one? Oh, I like God. it. It's my porky pig voice is quite bad. Otherwise I would. <laughs> All right. So I'm, yeah, this, yeah, I could try it, but if you want to give it a go, go for it. <laughs> uh, I, I, yeah, I'll try it. So this is porky pig, you know, at the, uh, the, uh, outro of the Looney Tunes thing where he's in the big orange circle waving goodbye. And, uh, he's saying the problem is the rich people. Because <laughs> obviously that's it's right. That's right, Porky. It's difficult to say <laughs> bourgeoisie. Yeah, hand, hands clasping meme. Marxists trying to pronounce bourgeoisie and uh, Lacanians trying to pronounce jouissance. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh man, or like uh, or. Orthodox Marxist trying to pronounce Alphagabung. <laughs> Alf- however, you, however you Alphabung, yeah, the the, the famous um, Hegelian <laughs> term that kind of roughly translates to sublation, but not really. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know what that is. We're gonna. It's another thing Neither for me to Hegelians. learn. Neither do Hegelians. Yeah, I don't actually think anybody knows what Alphabung means. Oh, okay. All right. Well, then I guess you know maybe we'll learn. I was gonna say we we were we are gonna learn this because this is what happens. Is I say I don't know something and then we learn it later. This one we might not but (laughs) (laughs) with that we're gonna wrap for this episode we want to thank everyone who supports us and if you don't support us it's the only way that we get any funding so please go to patreon.com slash work stoppage you get access to all of our bonus overtime content we are getting through our unions and the mob ila series again go back and check out the cybernetics series there's so many there's the general strike history which i mean there's even another one of those coming in not way 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 too long but anyway, support us there. It really means a lot. And also share the show with your friends. It helps people find the show. Write us a review somewhere. Jump in the Discord to come hang out. And also maybe teach us Canadian labor law. Like, mm-hmm. that would be cool. You know, if you know a lot about that, jump in there and uh, tell us a little bit about it. Uh, anyway, follow us in all the places. Links are at workstoppagepod.com. I actually also, another note there, I put the music lists on the website now so if you want to know where to find the spotify playlist or where to find the spreadsheet that says all of the songs that we've ever put on the show go to workstoppagepod.com listen to beep beep lettuce listen to red game table and as always labor peace is not in our interest and solidarity forever solidarity solidarity everybody I can't keep on moving backwards, I can't keep on moving backwards, I can't keep on moving backwards.